And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. All right, here we go, ladies and gentlemen. A little electronic techno techno stuff. I don't know what you call this music. We are live from the bunker. Jason Hunt here, deep beneath world headquarters here at Sci-Fi for Me. Happy to have you all here. Those of you who are returning guests and those of you who are new to the program, we're glad you're here. Lots of stuff going on. A busy week wrapping up this week. We've uh, we've had really good conversations this week. And hopefully you've been here for all of those. We've got another good one today. If you are with us on podcast platforms or if you're interested in uh, hearing us on a podcast platform, there are plenty from which you can choose. And we have listeners from all over the world, Malaysia, UK, Ireland, Russia, Australia, Germany. And we're glad all of you are here with us. The live chat is open. Comments are open and active. We have an email address, live from the bunker at sci-fi4me.com. And you can find us on all the socials, probably too many of them, but then, you know, that's the state of the world as we know it, right? We also have a newsletter. We do invite you to sign up for that. And, uh, the end of the week but here we go one more ladies and gentlemen speaking of techno stuff and speaking of social media and as i have done a number of times on this program and other places complaining about the youtube algorithms we've got a number of uh uh Discussions and debates and, and various different commentariat talking about AIs and algorithms and, and that sort of thing. And it's uh, given us a new book, Catch 42, which is by Felix Holsefel, and he joins us today from Germany. Welcome, sir. Thanks for having me. Well, we're glad to have you here. Now, your background, this is your very first fiction novel. This is a debut novel that just came out. It is your first fiction work, but you have a background in the technological side of things, you know, AI and robotics and machine learning and artificial intelligence and all of that. Is that right? You're, you're considered one of the thought leaders on digital transformation. What exactly does that mean? Yeah, um, so I started to work in the IT and digital marketing industry back in 1997. And um, I worked in an in a IT service company. And in 2002, I founded my own business together with my oldest brother who lives in the US. So it was a US German based um, digital marketing and IT company. And yeah, we grew the, the business uh, year per year and started to work for bigger and bigger clients. So it was a full service digital marketing agency and guiding companies into a more and more digital world. And our clients were from yeah, large blue chip companies to uh, small and medium sized businesses. Then over the time, our business got more and more international. We um, became part of another agency that was the biggest independent um, agency in the UK. And at the end of the day, in 2017, we sold the entire business to one of the leading IT companies of the world, Cognizant, a NASDAQ-listed company. And yeah, that's basically my background. So it's a, a wide, wide range from technological stuff. In my early days, I did some programming on my own. And later on, it was more, um, on the one hand, consulting. And on the other hand, yeah, having the, the bigger picture and connecting the dots across multiple disciplines. So when you talk about connecting the dots, uh, take me from your, your time in IT to the idea behind Catch-42. This is a techno thriller. 
And it says here, it's a novel about our future. The description here, uh, Tech Thriller Catch 42 offers a mind-blowing tour of potential uses for AI, biotech, quantum computing, and robotics, all within a suspense-filled story packed with unexpected twists. And I'm, I'm sitting here and I see AI, biotech, quantum computing, and robotics, and I'm automatically thinking Terminator, Skynet. I mean, I've made the joke for a number of years that as soon as Alphabet and Google buys Facebook, it's going to read all of our messages like Google does now with our with our email, and it's going to decide that's it. It's time we just you know nuke it from orbit just to make sure. Are is there a concern having worked in that field? Is that what this book is about? Are we looking at you know the rise of the machines in your book? Um, on the one hand, it's about concern, but um, on the other hand, I wanted to write that book for quite a while. So I had the idea um, to write a novel like Catch-42 for years now, but I never had the time because I was stuck in the daily business of uh, yeah, running our agency. And um, there were several reasons that motivated or that inspired me to, um, to write that book. And um, many people today believe that we are in the middle of a technological revolution, but from my point of view, we are just at the beginning. So in terms of technology, the world is still flat. And I believe that we are getting close to tipping points in the fields of AI, in the fields of biotech, in the field of quantum computing and robotics. And um, that really could fundamentally change our world and our view on the world. And that we are getting close to a point where we are talking about exponential growth in terms of knowledge. So some leading scientists or experts say, um, in the next hundred years, we will gain knowledge that usually would take thousands of years to uh, when, when we look back to the past, how things worked. Mm -hmm. And um, I also believe that our traditional ways of thinking are just not suited for the new universe that we are about to enter and that we need some new Einstein, some new Galileo, some new Newtons who um, turn our world upside down, who think the unthinkable, to, to, that make the impossible possible, which is basically the, the definition of a catch-42. So, and um, I believe that in today, many people are stuck in their, in their daily routine and they know somehow there is coming something and that might be big, but still you don't care so much. And I think now would be the right time to take a step back, take a look at the bigger picture so that we have a discussion about how do we want our future to look like in the mid and in the, in the long term. And because right now there are some crucial decisions that need to be made. And currently they are made by very few experts. And I believe that we would be well advised that more and more people get involved into that process because the more diverse the people who try to answer these questions, the better the answers will be. And the more likely it will be that the bigger picture will meet all our expectations. So I thought it may be a good idea to not write another professional book about all these topics that addresses all the experts that are working on, on, on these questions anyhow, but to yeah, create an intriguing story and to use storytelling to use the novel as a vehicle to get this message across to a wider audience. So that I encourage more and more people to join us on that journey and um, to become part of the decision-making process. That's from my point of view, very, very crucial. Now, when you're talking about, you know, answers to questions and, and people getting, getting involved in, in this kind of thing, as far as the decision-making process and developing new, uh, new ways of looking at things, new perspectives and such, are, is there a concern? Are you, are you coming at this uh, with, the, with the viewpoint that uh, we need more AI, robotics, biotech, or we need to have more care in how we develop this? Because I imagine it's, it's coming whether we want it or not. But you look mm -hmm. at things like you know Lockheed Martin doing a doing a, a, a development deal with um, with Darwin AI up in Canada, 
and then you've got the the robot dogs from from um, uh, Boston Dynamics yeah. learning how to avoid and recover when you know they get knocked over, they get pulled down, and these are things that are not being programmed into the dogs. They're being they're they're been they've been given the ability to learn. Uh, mm-hmm. You know the, you know, the students at the University of Edinburgh, I think, are the ones who put this thing together. Where you you push the dog down, you push Spot yeah. down, and now do, now the dog knows how to recover and get back up and keep going. And that's not something yeah. that's programmed into it. Are, should we be worried at some point that we're going to get too much AI, too much machine learning? Mm-hmm. Um, I think we should not be worried about less or more because as you already said i believe that you can stop progress so that's just our human nature if we can go somewhere we will go there it's more the question how do we design that future and um, what do we want this these ai machines or whatever um, to do and there are certain challenges going along with that first um today we live in a in a world where it's more about America first, about China first, now even about Europe first. And often, even on a national level, we are not able to to solve national challenges anymore. At the same time, we face global challenges uh, that require global collaboration and global answers because AI doesn't know any man-made borders. So do we need to agree on some moral and ethical standards on a global level? And if yes, how do we get to that point? And if no, how do we handle um, these issues? And I think the the pandemic showed how important it can be um, to collaborate on a global level because the pandemic doesn't know any man-made borders and technology doesn't know man-made borders either. Right, but the and challenge the challenge with that mind. though the the challenge with that though Felix is is the fact that whether whether or not you have you know these things like AI and 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 disease, uh, cryptocurrency for example, all of this stuff that just doesn't doesn't know borders. You talk about if we need to to work together, the moral component of that. There are some countries that are so diametrically opposed to other countries in terms of. Uh, points of view, ideology, uh, whether it's it's political or religious. How do you how do you encourage people who essentially don't get along to be to be generous? How do you convince them to work together to, that we have this this global dynamic on top of the national stuff? Because that doesn't seem to be very workable to me. <laughs> exactly. Unfortunately, I don't have the playbook for that challenge either. Yeah, so you mean, it's that's not, not like what this book is about? Uh, they are just three simple steps that all of us need to take and the world will we will live <laughs> in peace and harmony until the end of the world. Right. No, that's that's the point. And that even on, on a national level, we are not able anymore to, um, to collaborate on the level that would be necessary to address these challenges. Right. So how do we do that on an international level? That's absolute crucial question for the next couple of decades because we are running into a world where if if, um, one side of the world gets across a certain tipping point, they may be so far ahead of the rest of the world that it's a winner-takes-it-all scenario. And so there is a lot lot at stake for for the entire globe. And I think we would be well advised to collaborate because otherwise there will be many people losing in, in that scenario. But that's a that's a huge challenge. And what you also need to, need, need to keep in mind that refers to the to the quest to the question before is right now people are already astonished by what AI can do, like the, the robo dogs that you mentioned. But you need to keep in mind that today leading leading scientists say that. AI has the computing power of a honeybee. So it's super, super simple. What happens if AI gets the computing power of a mouse or of a monkey or of a human being? 
So that these are the type of questions. And then there are certain bottlenecks where you can say, for instance, if we get quantum computing work, this will be a huge game changer. You need to imagine that complex tasks that the fastest supercomputer today would require thousands of years could be done within a couple of seconds by a quantum computer. And this could unlock a huge big bang of innovation in the fields of AI and the fields of biotech and the fields of robotic. So, and we are not so far apart. Nobody knows if this will happen in a couple of years, in a couple of decades. Yeah, we, we just don't know. But history taught us that there are certain things where we thought it may take a couple of more years or a couple of more decades and suddenly they happened. For instance, the, um, the ethical committees around the world were still discussing the implications of um, genetic engineering of babies. And while the ethical commissions were having these discussions, the scientists in China gave birth to the first genetic optimized babies. So, and how do, we, how do we react on things like that, that really fundamentally influence what are we as a species and where are we heading to in the future? It's and, a, uh, these are the type of challenges. It's an interesting question. It's a conundrum almost because not only it, it harkens back and reminds me of uh, Ian Malcolm's line in Jurassic Park, just because, you know, you know, scientists were so busy figuring out how to do something. They never, they never questioned whether or not they should. I mean, I'm paraphrasing there, but we mm -hmm. get to that point where you're talking about quantum computers and, and we've got machine learning and whatnot. The question for me uh, is, you know, having grown up in the 80s, having, having been there when the personal computer became the thing and, and all of that, now you see stuff like, you know, 1984 and the Hunger Games and all of these dystopian futures that are out there. And my question is, do we want our technology to develop that much? Do we have it within us to be able to control these things because you know a robot a machine a droid an android or whatever machine learning algorithms they all start with whoever programs them and as human beings we're flawed we have our biases we have our our personal preferences and and ideologies and you look at something like youtube for example it's completely innocuous but the algorithms have started to take over such that channels get flagged for certain words or certain topics. And, and if, you, if you talk about this particular thing, we're going to demonetize or we're going to suppress the search and you won't be able to, you know, nobody will be able to find you. It, it, it feels to me like wild, wild west rules in terms of the AI, who's managing the AI? Where do we set those roadblocks and those parameters and how do we set those limits on what AI can do? Because if AI is going to start learning for itself, like this Boston Dynamics dog, at what point does it get out of control? Is that a concern? Absolutely. And these are exactly the type of questions that we need to, to ask ourselves and that we need to ask ourselves on a, on a bigger level, not just by a few experts, but I believe that we are talking about such fundamental things that could really change our society, our way of life. And at the end of the day, when you talk about genetic engineering, our species. And they are happening really amazing things. And um, at the end of the day, I'm an optimistic person. I think that technology can help us to solve some challenges that we were not able to solve since our, our species is here, like um, hunger, like fair distribution of wealth, like um, getting older. Like There are so many things where technology can do a great job. But um, the question is, do we use technology in the right way? Because we are getting to some points where if we take the wrong turn, then we can really screw it up. And... Um, yeah, Some would we argue we've already done that. Go down the road. <laughs> yeah, that's that's uh, um, that's the uh, the interesting question at the end of the day. Yeah. 
So the title of the book is Catch 42. Give me a little bit more insight on what, what that means. Because I've heard Catch 22. Mm-hmm. You know, you're in, you're, mm-hmm. it's basically a rock and a hard place. You're in a Catch 22. You can't make, you know, you have to choose between the lesser of two evils, as it were. So Catch mm-hmm. 42 refers to what exactly? Mm-hmm. So first, um, I believe we live in a world full of catch-22s. So I already mentioned that we are living in a world with America first, Europe first, um, China first, and so on. So, um, And on the other hand, we have these global challenges that uh, require um, a global collaboration. We have things like the gap between the rich and the poor on a national and on an international level. Um, for instance, in the U.S., the top 1% of the wealthy people um, have 40% of the wealth, and the bottom 90% of families in the U.S. have only 25% of the wealth. And it doesn't look any better if you look on a global level. According to Oxfam, the wealthiest 62 people have um, the same wealth like the poorest 50% of the global um, population, which is about 4, trillion, uh, 4 billion people. So, at, um, so you could argue, do we live in, in a type of capital feudalism, where it's not about how hard you work and what you do and who you are, but it only matters in which family or in which country you are born. At the same time, we believe that everybody can achieve everything, that the that we, every one of us can live the American dream. Then we have the, the next Kent 22 that what we already talked about, like that many people are scared of so-called AGI, artif- uh, artificial general intelligence, when algorithms get smarter than humans. Yeah. Um, at the same time, we many people work on make that come true. So, um, and I believe that we would be well advised to yeah, to think the unthinkable and to make the impossible possible, which I define as a catch-42. So how did I end up with catch-42? Um, of course, uh, it refers to another very uh, famous line um, out of another book, the answer to the <laughs> ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. I was wondering and, if that was the case. And um, also, I was 42 years old when I wrote the book. And last but not least, in the, in the world that I create within Catch-42, in the future, um, human and artificial intelligence have merged. And people go into a virtual world. Um, the, the world is, is called WeU. There's the we part of the world, which is the physical world in which we live in today. Mm-hmm. But in the future, we're hardly in that physical world anymore because we screwed up the planet and um, you only spend as much time in the physical world as you need to. And in the physical world, it's only about the society. There is no individualism, no wealth, nothing that, that you own and so on. But in the you part of the world, in the virtual so-called real world in the book, because the virtual world has become more real to the people than the physical world, everyone can be everything. So you can live different lives and um, you can be as happy as you want. And in that virtual world, because of the, of, uh, we were able to merge artificial and human intelligence, we are able to control dreams. So in, when you dream, your brain works only for a couple of seconds, but it feels like you experience something for hours. We know the same phenomena when somebody dies and your life passes by within a couple of seconds. And due to that breakthrough in technology, people can stretch the time by the factor 42, which means one year in the physical world is equal to 42 years in the virtual real world. So, um, and these are the reasons why I ended up with the title uh, Catch 42. And of course, my, my... Dream would be to, uh, Joseph Heller coined the term catch-22 with his book, with the the dilemmas and Mm -hmm. the paradoxes. And um, of course, I would be happy to coin the opposite term um, that 
when people talk about a catch 42 and you get home at the evening and you tell your wife, hey, honey, today at work, I had a really catch 42 moment. Yeah, it's something I was working on for years. And now I, I just was able to look at it from a completely different perspective. And that was the game changer that helped me to, to get the thing done. Yeah. Uh, in the chat, we've got a comment from Mazers. He says, it's inevitable, the marrying of the human body to advanced digital systems, not something as clumsy as a pacemaker. But you look at your cell phone and, and think of a much more advanced version of that. Are, are, when, you, when you talk about biotech, uh, mm -hmm. and now you're looking at, you know, you're talking about living in a virtual world. I, there, I've run across, it's funny that, that you mentioned that because... We've got books like Ready Player One, for example, and then I just finished this book called Unfettered Journey by Gary uh, Gary Bingier. and this this book explores AI from the standpoint of consciousness, the question of you know the soul, uh, the difference between a human being and an AI or a robot. Uh, coming down to not just uh, the information that it processes, but the value that's assigned to it and how how humans can make that leap in, you know, judging the value of something based on relations to other things and your experiences and things. Robots and AI don't have that capability to assign meaning to something. Mm -hmm. Is mm -hmm. that... Is that sort of a safety net? At, at, at what point do we worry about, you know, AIs becoming conscious? Is that, even, is that even a possibility that's on the table at some point, do you think? Um, it's kind of funny because um, I tie in the consciousness uh, question into my book as well, but more from a perspective from, on the one hand, the AI world, and on the other hand, from the perspective of the quantum world that we are about to enter, yeah. which is also super exciting and super contradictionary to what we are used to and how our world works. And also funny that you mentioned Ready Player One because um, I finished the manuscript of my book in November um, 2020, exactly when Ready Player Two um, came out. And Ready Player Two has more that connection to the question of consciousness than Ready Player One. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I mean, Ready Player One and Ready Player Two play a lot with that virtual reality um, devices and that you dive into, into the oasis by a virtual reality external device. But I believe that these are only bridge technologies. So um, scientists today already say that our brain is a biochemical algorithm. So it's not so much different to information technology, but we are just not able to decode it because we don't have the computer power necessary to understand the brain waves. But that once we have that capability, then we will be able to read thoughts. Then um, we will be able one day to not only read, but to also write. And um, then it's most likely that yeah, human and artificial intelligence will merge. And we are already going down the first steps down this road. There are already devices that are not able to read your thoughts directly, but that, for instance, there is a device that you can attach to your neck. And only by thinking what you like to say, the device detects some neural um, impulses in your, in your body and can read your thoughts via these, yeah, via this workaround. So, and it can translate what you think without you saying it. Mm. And um, so, and these are the, the first steps. We are already on that road, and that is not sci-fi. This is stuff that is already happening today. And what I do in my book, because what I learned in my professional career when I um, gave speeches at industry events and I was talking about technology today and what's coming next, I often experienced that even people working in our industry were like, whoa, give me a break. That sounds like sci-fi. Or like, no, that's not sci-fi. That's already happening today. Go to the lab XYZ. There you can touch that device. They can experience these type of technologies. And what I do in my book is that I reference to plenty of TED Talks, to YouTube videos, to 
books where you get additional information on the status quo and what will be the next steps in certain fields of, of science. So at the end of the day, my book works as an entrance door into these worlds, what, what will, what's happening today in the field of AI, of quantum computing and of biotechnology, and what will happen next. Because even the things that are happening today and that most people don't know about are already really astonishing. Well, and in talking about all of this, you know, you, you've got the technical side of this and all of the real world aspects of it, but there's also a story actually involved here, uh, and uh, this is uh, catch42.com's the website. The story here, reading, reading the description, Dan's an ordinary guy scrambling to make a living who has the most extraordinary dream. A mysterious voice from the future asks for his help. He finds himself transported to a technological wonderland where everyone's dreams can come true. Could this be Nirvana, a peaceful and clear state of mind, or is this life destroying the one thing that makes us human? Whose vision of the future should Dan believe? That of the new world order of Wii U or the revolution of an underground movement called Techupy? Before Dan can make his choice, he must learn how we got from here to there. We are with Dan at every moment as he is forced to choose sides and think the unthinkable, make the impossible possible, and turn a hopeless situation into a solvable problem in his search for the ultimate catch-42. So this, this sounds like... Um, the New World Order, Wii U, and and Techupy, I, I get shades of the Matrix. Are there are there other uh, other stories that are influencing this? You've got 1984. You've got Animal Farm. Uh, I'm seeing a little bit of Matrix here, maybe. Uh, are, what what other what other aspects of this? I mean, the story itself. Where did that part come from? I mean, you're you're using it as a vehicle to talk about AI and and robotics and all of this, but where the idea for the for the story side of things start? Mm -hmm. um, I think there are elements of plenty of different stories that I read or movies I watched during during my life. And sometimes it's hard to tell where exactly the inspiration came from, yeah. but I have quite a long list at the end of the book where I say these. My, these, these are books and movies and other sources of information that perhaps have inspired me. Of course, you already mentioned 1984. So this is an important book that was one of the starting points when I thought about um, writing a book like Catch-42. Because I was wondering if George Orwell would live today and would know the status quo of technology today, how would his world 2084 look like because i mean it's so amazing how many of his predictions came true and we even took it further i mean the telescreen yeah, is the the mobile devices we every one of us is carrying in our in our pocket yeah. are so much ahead of a telescreen um so it's it's unbelievable so this was one one inspiration of course there are parts of inception matrix you name it. So I'm a, I'm a big Christopher Nolan fan, like the type of storytelling. I try to bring something of that into my book as well, um, to yeah, have different storylines, um, unexpected twists and things that are different than they seem and that these different storylines move to one grand final at the end of the book, um, which then is again different than anything you would have expected. And But of course, <laughs> this is challenging and Readers need to judge if, if I at least made this somehow um, came true. Yeah. But then there were also books like, more like professional books, like um, Homo Deus by Yuval Noah Harari, or uh, Hacking Darwin by Jamie Metzl, or Quantum Computing for Beginners by Chris Bernhardt, or Life 3.0 by Max Tegmark, or you name it. So there are plenty of really great professional books out there. Um, but again, what I mentioned earlier, that I think our society would be well advised if not only experts would read that books, but the, the entire society, because we're living in a digital world that's dominated by information technology, but still, when you go to school, when you go to university or whatever, um, people don't learn enough about these technologies compared to the impact the technologies or the role 
technology plays in our day. Um, then I was inspired um, after we sold the company, there's, there was of course some integration work that needed to be done, but um, in 2019, I took a year off of sabbatical and traveled the world with my family, my wife and my two kids. And a lot of the conversations that I had on that journey and the experience we had, the people we met, the places we visited, found their book into the book as well, found their way into the book as well. And last but not least, when we returned from that journey, and it was just about to start to, to write Catch 42. Uh, we came back in February 2020, so exactly at that time when the pandemic hit the world. Right. So, and of course, there was another impulse where you could see, okay, we have a pandemic, we have that global challenge, and suddenly things that would have been unimaginable before turned into reality within a couple of days. You could see what could be possible if humanity is really willing to take certain steps. And yeah, that was also something that inspired me and my book. At the end of the day, the question um, that I also think all of us would be well advised to, to ask that from time to time, what needs to happen until we really learn our lessons? <laughs> Do we need these type of catastrophes to, to take the next steps? And in human history, it was often that these type of catastrophes like pandemics, like World War I, World War II, and these type of situations led to a big bang of innovation. But do we really need to get into trouble first because before we can find the solutions? And there are some problems ahead like global warming or like the technological revolution where once we cross a certain tipping point, our corridor of, of decision-making possibilities gets so narrow that we would be well advised to if we start to prepare today, even as the pandemic teached us that you can't be prepared for the unexpected, yeah. because by definition, the unexpected is unexpected. <laughs> but there are certain scenarios that leading scientists tell you this is most likely to happen in a couple of years or a couple of decades. If it's a pandemic, or if it's certain developments in the fields of technology I'm talking about. There is a wide consensus in, in, uh, in, in the community of the leading experts that these and these and these things will happen. So, and uh, these are the things that I describe in my book and that I try to yeah, get across with a, with a bit of storytelling and not with a professional book, but a, yeah, a hopefully intriguing story. You talk about uh, disasters and and bad things happening in order for us to innovate, and and I'm besides you know world wars and various different conflicts and and natural disasters and whatnot. Uh, I also think about the space race and the developments in technology and innovation that came out of that. Not just you know with the Apollo missions and and Mercury and such, but all of the stuff that's been going on with the space shuttle program and the International Space Station, that that might have grown out of the competitive nature, this U.S. versus Russia type of thing in terms of, you know, the, the space race coming out of the Cold War. But mm -hmm. I think you could say that for the most part, that's one of those places where innovation happened without the disaster that came uh, before it. But I want to go back to your, your comment about 1984 and, and Orwell and, and taking a look at, at you know, what he would be looking at now. Because 1984 is seen by a, a good majority of people as a, as a, a, a cautionary tale, a warning yeah, mm -hmm. the, and and he's talking specifically about certain things, but they can apply today. And a lot of people are looking like, no, wait, it was supposed to be a warning, not an instruction book. We see we see things like uh, you know the social status system that's being implemented in China now, for example, where if you are at a certain level, you don't get to travel, you don't get certain privileges if your social media status is a certain thing. Uh, in this in this book by by uh, Gary, this unfettered journey, there's something in here called the Levels Act, which basically says you are at level 22. They're level one. You can't interact. You can only have certain kinds of jobs at certain levels. And and you look at 
you know, the clout chasing, you look at the, the, at the behavior of some people online, you know, the cancel culture being, being, uh, an aspect of that and social media, uh, given all of the algorithms and the machine learning that's behind the scenes there, Facebook and Twitter and, and YouTube and such, it almost seems like we're going down the wrong path. Is, is your book a, a cautionary tale of sorts or is it, you know, is it, is it aspirational in, in look at all this stuff we could do. This would be great. Let's try this. Or is it more, hang on, let's think about this first. Where, where are you, are you falling on one particular perspective or the other? Um, I, I think I'm somewhere in between. So somebody recently said, when I read your book, you took me deep into the rabbit hole of a dystopian future. And frankly, if I look at technology today, where I talk to my friends about topic ABC, and uh, in the evening I turn on my TV and watch Hulu, and there pops up a, a commercial about ABC, something that I didn't Google, that I just talked to about to another person. And um, so, Yes, I used the, the story as a vehicle to go into the dystopian future and tell people, see, these are the sort of things that could happen if we kind of screw it up. But even in a dystopian world, it's not always about black and white. There are plenty of shades of gray in between. So there are things that are horrible that scare the heck out of you, but at the same time offer you great opportunities. And it's up to us to make the right choices. And at the end of the story, once I took the people down to that rabbit hole, I climb up again and show them the light at the end of the tunnel. That, Because at the end of the day, I'm an optimistic person. I, as I mentioned earlier, I think we have great technologies at our fingertips. We just need to use them wisely. And we are still in a very good position today to make the right decisions. But we need to start with it and rather sooner than later, and rather with more people than with just a few experts to get a, um, a consensus within our societies. And that's at the end of the day, yeah, my message. It's, and I also think that what I wanted to, to try to get across with my book is that I believe today we are living in times of great uncertainties in many different ways. And one of these great uncertainties is that we don't know what the future will have in stock for us. Just everybody tells you things will fundamentally change and that's contradictionary to our human nature. So we don't want things to change dramatically. So, um, because back in the past when we were still living in caves in the stone age, when things changed dramatically, that could kill us. Right. So it's just not the way um, how, how we want things um, to move, but um, yeah. But we are in a world where things just change very fast. I, I saw something uh, the other day, and I can't remember where I saw it, but it looks like there, there are developments now in AI uh, when it comes to, you know, we, we see the face apps and the face swaps and, and that kind of thing, but now they're talking about using that technology to do a different kind of method for translating films for example so say say if you're doing you're doing you're 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 watching the movie you know you're watching star wars and mm -hmm. we're going to we're going to create a translation of star wars in japanese well instead of the subtitles or instead of just dubbing the words now we're actually going to be able to use cg and have Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker in 1977 speaking in Japanese. And I look at this stuff and I think, at what point do, at what point is too far? Because if you take something like that, you have an unscrupulous person who can take your face and I can put your face over here on this message of, you know, some terrorist organization from the Middle East. I can make you say things that you never said. And put you in a place where you never were. And it seems to me there's a real danger here because how 
how responsible can we actually be with all of this technology? And then that raises the question of, okay, well, who regulates all of this stuff? Who gets to tell us what we can or cannot do? Do we trust our governments and our elected officials to, you know, define our parameters for operating all of this stuff? Mm-hmm. Is that, is that, a, is, am I, am I out on a limb here? Am I worrying too much about what, what dangers there are? Not at all, because again, you need to keep in mind that all these technologies are still in their infant in, in infancies. So we are at the beginning of a very long journey. And still, there are already things and technologies that scare you. And you are right that you were scared by the technology that you just mentioned, because of course, it can be abused. And I think um, the question that you raised, do we trust in our governments that they regulate that properly? I think in most countries of the world, the answer would be, no, I don't trust them. Because there we get back to the point that I mentioned earlier, that even on a national level, there are so many things, there are so many gaps between different parts of the society that um, we're not even able to solve these type of challenges on a national level. So, but again, these are technologies that don't know any man-made borders. They don't care about them. So we somehow need to get some catch-42s happen in, in, in that um, world, because otherwise we just let things go and watch from the sideline, and it's most likely that it won't develop the way that, um, that we want it to develop. But technology offers some, some great opportunities to that. It's not that technology is only bad. It's just a tool. Right. It could only help to, it could also help to get more people into these type of decision-making processes, to rethink our um, understanding of democracy, to find a common understanding of different political systems. Because honestly, our understanding of the world is so different to Asian cultures, for instance, or to China. You mentioned the social scoring system. It's something that scares the heck out of the Western world. And for them, it's just, it's the way it is. It's good that we have a system like that. Frankly speaking, in some ways, we have systems like that in our world as well. Because look, when when I want to travel, there are certain countries that ask for my social media handles. Mm -hmm. Um, And I need to provide them to them. But I mean, it's, it's kind of funny because I know I don't need to provide them to you. You already have them. Yeah, you don't need, it's, it's nice that you asked me to provide you that social media handles, but right. I'm quite sure that you don't care. Yeah? So um, there are things, even in the Western world, where we abuse these sort of technologies. And um, so, yes, um, that's, that's, there we are getting to the core. Now we are talking. Yeah, these are the sort of questions that we need to ask ourselves. Because if we just continue like we continue today, it's most likely that we will screw it up and that we get to these horror scenarios that are outlined in my book as well. Yeah. Um, and some things that are already mentioned during our conversation. So how do we, how do we guard against something like that going horribly, horribly wrong? What kind of questions do we need to be asking of ourselves and as you're writing this book, what insights are you getting about yourself and, and how you've been looking at AI and IT and all of this? I mean, you're, you've got this career, and now you're mm-hmm. writing this book on, on, on various different scenarios and, and future and whatnot. Have you, have you reexamined any of your own beliefs, philosophies, answers to questions? Have you, have you had to kind of switch some of the things that you've been thinking as you've gone through developing this story? Or has this just reinforced your own um, assumptions, biases, uh, things that you've learned, conclusions that you've drawn? Again, it's um, it's not about black and white, yes or no. It's um, somewhere in between. Yeah. So it yes, it backed up some of my assumptions, but 
I also learned many of new things while talking to some of the leading experts in, in each of the fields I'm, I'm talking about. And um, also, yeah, digging deeper into some of the topics than I used to dig in um, earlier. And um, yes, of course, there, there are questions that we um, should ask ourselves, and there, there are plenty of them. And what I try to do in the book is that I try to focus on raising the questions and not of providing the answers, which is kind of challenging sometimes, because even by the way you ask, of course, between the lines, you provide a certain type of answer and people most likely can read what you think. But still, I, I want to encourage people to make their own choices because it's not about what Felix thinks it's right. Mm -hmm. No, it's about what the majority of people think it's right. And it's not about the top 1% who have that 40% of the wealth or not about the 62 persons that earn this, that have as much wealth as the 50% of the poorest population of the world. We should also include the 50% poorest people of the world. We should also include the 90% of the bottom families in the, in, in the US, um, which only have 25% of the world. But that's not the way how our world works today. Yeah. But that's how I believe that our world should work. But again, if people decide, no, Felix, we believe the 1% should make the decisions for us, then that's fine. But I think we would be well advised to have at least that conversation and to ask our, ourselves things like, okay, there's a technological revolution ahead and uh, most likely our brains will get connected to a global network of knowledge to artificial intelligence. It's most likely that not too far apart, um, we will be genetically uh, optimized. Um, it's most likely that there will be machines and robots that do a lot of the traditional work. And so how do we design that, that process, that, that progress? Yeah. Um, or, yeah, the, we already talked about um, man-made borders. Um, yeah, and another question that I, that I raised pretty much at the end of the book, and I think it's a, it's a good picture for, for people to ask themselves is, if our world today would be a simulation and somebody would press the restart button, what could we do better? Mm -hmm. And if there are things that we could do better, and I'm sure if each of us asks themselves this question, we would find some things that we could do better. Right. And then the question is, why don't we start with doing better today? And that's at the end of the day, it's the, the message of the book. Now, over the last five or 10 years, especially or so, there has been an ongoing debate in certain circles in fiction about whether or not message fiction has a place. And, and the, the debate has been, should the message come first or should you be telling an entertaining story and the message is kind of in the subtext? How did you approach this one? Because you have, you have specific questions that you're asking with this story and you have, uh, you have a message of sorts about, you know, developing technologies and all of this. When you're, when you're putting this book together, did you find any kind of a, a battle of priorities uh, so much? I mean, what, is it, did you have to pull yourself back from the message and focus more on story or, or were you able to, to find that balance pretty easily? No, that was a big challenge. <laughs> to be honest, at the beginning, when my editor read the, the first draft of the manuscript, or it was not even the first draft, it was more a summary, like this is my idea of the book, was like, Felix, this sounds not like a novel. This sounds like a lecture. Yeah. And um, so for me, yeah, it was, was challenging to, to find the right balance between the, um, the storytelling and the message. Right. Because to be honest, I'm aware of the discussion. Should a book like this have a message or should it be more about the, the, the story? Uh, should novels tell a message at all? Um, because people want to be entertained when they read a novel. They just want to relax. And uh, if they want to read a message, then they read a professional book or a book about politics, but not a, not a story. Yeah. And uh, 
But I'm not, not sure about that. I think that, um, that there are many different ways how people learn, how people start to think about things. And each, of, each one of us is different and has different preferences. And the one person's prefer a story that um, is just easygoing. And another person loves stories that combines hard facts with a good story. And I believe that um, the part of people who just enjoy a, a story is probably bigger. So I would sell more copies of the book if I take away some parts of the message. Mm. But my idea was that if I look at books like um, the, the ones that I mentioned earlier, like Yuval Noah Harari, um, who's yeah, writing bestsellers, um, still the target audience is, is quite tiny. And if I'm able to create one or two additional layers to the target audience that these type of more professional, more philosophical books address, then I've already achieved more than, than I have dreamed of. So, um, but yes, that was an ongoing challenge um, for me to find the right balance. And I'm still not sure if, if I really found it. And I'm, but what I'm sure is that not everyone will like the book and um, that there are people who will love it. And, but I, from, from my experience, from my professional background, it's good to have a polarizing story, mm. to have something that not everyone likes, but that people, that some people also disagree with, because this creates the type of tension that creates interesting conversations. And that's at the end of the day, I want to achieve with my book. I, I think, um, I think if you look at, um, I mean, Ryan Johnson kind of has a similar philosophy. I think, I don't think it turned out so well for him with regard to the last Jedi. You might, you might, uh, you might want to rethink that a little bit, uh, because you know, the, this idea of people that are, you know, I, you know, that, that certain people are not going to get into it. Um, uh, that's, that's a very different thing from, uh, making a conscious decision to make something that challenges people so so much so that they hate your story, and I don't. It doesn't sound like you're doing that kind of thing, um, mm -hmm. but I am very much looking forward to reading it. It's called Catch Forty Two, and it is out now. I believe it came out. I think in April. Is that right? Uh, on May thirteenth. Uh, May thirteenth. Okay. Yeah, I read that wrong. All right. So, and then Felix, of course, is over on. Uh, Twitter, are you on any other social media platforms or is Twitter the main place where people can find you? Um, you find me on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on Instagram. These are the, the platforms where I usually hang out. Okay, and catch42.com. It's got a hyphen in it. We are linking to that in the notes. And uh, I'm, you know, as soon as I can get this read and uh, we'll post a review and see what happens there. Felix Holzapfel, thank you very much for being here, sir. Thank you very much for having me. And I'm looking forward to your feedback once you've finished reading my book. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. This, this, this idea of, of AI and consciousness and robotics and, and that is, is a fascinating topic. And I'm, I'm not sure that I'm fully equipped because I'm an old man and I don't learn new tricks very well, but you know, it's, it's one of those things that I, that I always look forward to new ideas. And, and we do have a comment in the chat from Mazerus. He's very impressed with your upright piano there. Um, let's see here. Uh, oh, he's, he's talking about Ryan Johnson and he mentions uh, the comedians, the idea of effective standup is to have 50% of the room laughing and 50% of the room horrified and ready to walk out. <laughs> so, so maybe you're on the right track there with that 50% are going to like it and 50% won't. All right, Felix, thank you very much. I will let you get back to your day. And uh, like I said, we will post a review over, uh, over at sci-fi for me.com as soon as I can get one written and we will uh, blast that out on the socials and we'll, uh, we should have you back. Are you going to be working on another book anytime or soon, or is this, or is this one and done for you? Uh, no, it, I, I don't think that it will be one and done, but uh, I guess the next challenge will be, I read that, I, I wrote that book in English, which is not my first, but my second language. And, um, but in Germany, there are already people asking me like, okay, when will that be, when will it be, uh, the book be available in German? 
So uh, probably that will be the next book that I'm going to publish. It's just Catch 42 in German. And then, yeah, I'll, I'll take it from there. I already have plenty of ideas about other books, but that's one of the challenges in my life that I usually have more ideas than time. And um, so, yeah, uh, I will see. Let's, let's see what the um, next book will be. And of course, I'm also excited about the feedback from, from people who read the book. And I'm uh, pretty sure that that feedback will help me to yeah, decide which will be my next story I'm going to write. All right. And this book is available Amazon, Apple Books, Barnes & Noble, Google Play, Kobo, and Thalia. Those are those are platforms I have not heard of before. I'm assuming there uh, you have the print edition and an ebook edition available. Exactly. All right. So we will have that up and uh, we'll have you back for another conversation at some point. I'm sure I'm sure AI is not going anywhere. We'll have uh, we'll have those discussions in the future. Yeah. And also one thing, support your local dealer. Yeah, go to your local bookstore. They probably won't have the book in store yet, uh, but I, most of them should be able to order it for you. And But of course, you can also order it at one of the major players like the one you already mentioned. All right. Okay, Felix, thank you very much for being here, sir. And thank, thank all you. of you for being here. Those of you who are in the chat, those of you who are leaving comments, uh, we do appreciate the interaction. And I know... It helps that YouTube algorithm if you want to give us a thumbs up or a thumbs down, depending on how you feel about things. And we do invite you to subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Have your notifications turned on, and you can find us on all of the socials. You can also leave us feedback through email, live from the bunker at scififorme.com. Coming up this weekend, we have all of the week's headlines on Good Morning Multiverse at uh, 10 a.m. Central. And then later on in the day, a new TARDIS sauce with a Doctor Who discussion. I'm not sure what their topic is going to be this week. Uh, so you'll have to tune in to find out. 1 p.m. Eastern, 12 Central. And then we're back here on Monday to start it all over again with another Live from the Bunker and the H2O podcast. So we do invite you to tune in for that. And that's going to do it for us. Thanks very much for being here, folks. Remember, there are four lights. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2021 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. 